Well, we're in 1 Samuel 17, if you have a Bible with you today. 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, halfway down the aisles here, there are some black Bibles. Even now, you can feel free to get up and grab one of those and turn to 1 Samuel 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Perhaps the most well-known Bible story except for the birth of Jesus. Its familiarity is not just confined to religious circles. It's embedded in pop culture. You hear about it in sports when a, when a no-name college goes up against a top-ranked university. It's a David and Goliath kind of game. It's a story that gives hope to the little guy. It gives hope to the impossible situation. It's even a model for leadership and life improvement. So says Malcolm Gladwell in his new book called David and Goliath. He says David and Goliath is a story, quote, about what happens when ordinary people confront giants. By giants, I mean powerful opponents of all kinds, from armies and mighty warriors to disability, misfortune, and oppression. He goes on to say, the act of facing overwhelming odds produces greatness and beauty. Giants are not what we think they are. The fact of being an underdog can change people in ways that we often fail to appreciate. It could open doors and create opportunities and educate and enlighten and make possible what otherwise seemed unthinkable. We need a better guide to facing giants, Gladwell says. And there's no better place than that epic confrontation between David and Goliath. Well, I say hogwash to all that. It might be motivating, but it's not what the biblical story of David and Goliath is all about. When I hear that kind of take on David and Goliath, I can't help but think of Steve Martin's little speech in Three Amigos about El Guapo. I'll quote it for you. <laughs> In a way, all of us have an El Guapo to face someday. For some, shyness might be their El Guapo. For others, a lack of education might be their El Guapo. For us, El Guapo is a big dangerous guy who wants to kill us. But as sure as my name is Lucky Day, the people of Santa Poco can conquer their own personal El Guapo, who also happens to be the actual El Guapo. Lucky Day didn't refer to David and Goliath in his speech, but he sure could have if the story of David and Goliath is just one to inspire underdogs to imagine the impossible. It's not. Then what is it about? What lessons does it teach us? Well, I don't want to give too much away up front, but here are a few things that it teaches us. It's not a story of how we can conquer whatever obstacles are before us, but a story which shows us how slow we are to be stirred and bothered when God's name is dishonored. It's not a story about David's underestimated strength, but God's underestimated strength. It's a story which shouldn't immediately, anyway, stir up our own confidence it should actually expose our sins of fear and doubt. It's a story which should cause us to look for a deliverer, a hero, and it's not us. 1 Samuel 17, turn with me there, and we'll read the first few verses to get the scene in our minds. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. You can skip to verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So there, the stage is set. It's a battle. It's a familiar scene, a battle with the Philistines. From this point in the story, we get five movements Five movements of the story, each with a contrast. 
So if you look on the sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, there are five points there. Each is a contrast. In the first, we're introduced to two figures who couldn't be more different. It's first a godless giant and a young shepherd. It looks like two introductions, two character sketches. In verses 1 through 11, it introduces us to this godless giant, Goliath. And then we're introduced to the young shepherd, David, verses 12 to 18. It might seem like they're just separate introductions. We know they're going to square off at the end of the story. We know that much about the story. Even if you've never read the story from the Bible, you know where this is going. David and Goliath are going to eventually go at it. But at first, we're just given these separate introductions that seem unrelated. First is Goliath the godless giant. Let's read verses 4 and following. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on, on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The physical description given to us of Goliath is unusually detailed. Purposely so. He stands over nine and a half feet tall. His armor is just as impressive as his height. Bronze helmet, bronze covering his legs, a coat of bronze chain mail, which weighed 126 pounds. Just the tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Just imagine that. The tip of the spear, you want a spear light, right, and agile. You want it to sail through the air. It weighs as much as a 15-pound kettlebell. And obviously, Goliath has no problem hurling that spear. He has a shield bearer that went before him, meaning his shield is carried by another guy. He's got too much to carry. It's a giant shield, a full-body shield. Someone would go and set it up at the place of battle, and then it would begin. So every day, the giant would go down in the valley, and he would throw down a gauntlet to Israel. This isn't the way every battle was done back then. Oftentimes, it would be army against army. But every now and then, there would be some sort of challenge like this. Our best man against your best man. And of course, you got a guy like Goliath. That's a good challenge to throw down. Every day, the challenge was thrown down. Every day, the response was the same. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So there's Goliath, godless giant. Then we're reintroduced to David, the young shepherd boy. I say reintroduced because, remember, we saw him last week. And I need to mention something again about what we said last week regarding the chronology of 1 Samuel. In chapter 16, we saw that shepherd boy David anointed to be the next and future king of Israel. But we also saw a scene at the end of the chapter, a fast-forward moment when David was an adult. And he's in the household of Saul. He's Saul's chief musician. He's Saul's armor bearer. He's now a, a warrior, a, a mighty warrior. And the chapter ends. 
But now in chapter 17, we're going to get introduced, reintroduced to David as a shepherd boy now. It's gone back in time. That's not a mistake. It's that they wrote history slightly differently than we do today. We're sticklers for chronology. But biblical history was okay with breaking the chronology every now and then if it served the purpose of putting two pictures together that, that communicate some kind of message. So we got a snapshot of David in the last chapter as the boy who's anointed and also the one who is in Saul's house and a blessing even to the king who's on his way out. God is using him. This week we see Jesus, uh, sorry, David as the young shepherd boy. Look at verse 12. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, that is, into battle. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their, of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. What's emphasized here about David? Well, again, like the beginning of chapter 16, David is the youngest. It could be translated the smallest of the boys. He's too young for battle, that's clear. The older ones went into battle, the younger ones didn't. David was one that didn't. He was tasked with just two things. Keeping the sheep, not exactly the choicest job of the family, and running food to his more important brothers who are at the battle and getting an update uh, on their welfare for his father. In other words, he's a messenger boy. He could be easily overlooked in the telling of this story if we didn't know where it was going. What a contrast he is with Goliath. The giant and the boy. The warrior and the shepherd messenger boy. But now is a good time for us to remember those poignant words from last week in chapter 16. Where God said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Tuck that away. It's the interpretive key, really, to 1 Samuel 17. We're told, going into it, God doesn't see like man sees. We're told that in chapter 16. We turn the page to chapter 17. And immediately we're introduced to giant guy and little guy. God doesn't see the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. The second scene, we see a fearful army and an outraged boy. A fearful army and an outraged boy. Verse 19, Now Saul and they... And all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Now remember, the Philistines were a familiar foe to Israel. 
battles with the Philistines go back to the book of Judges, and they're, they're frequent and bloody. Even in 1 Samuel, we've seen the Philistines come up several times. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, Israel's army was decimated by the Philistines, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and brought it back to their land. Until God himself took out thousands of Philistines with tumors, and they sent the Ark back with an apology. We saw in 1 Samuel 7... A rare victory for Israel over the Philistines. In that chapter, they returned to the Lord from their sin. And they prayed for God's help. And it says, God thundered against the Philistines. And he threw them into confusion. And Israel marched in and had the victory. We saw when Saul was anointed king in chapter 9, that God said, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And here we are now in chapter 17, and it's not just the same old Philistine army, mighty as it was, but now they also have this giant Goliath, who, as he says, defies the ranks of Israel this day. Verse 16 tells us, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Twice a day for 40 days. 80 times the giant Goliath came and taunted or mocked or derided Israel. And how did Saul and the army respond each time? We already read in verse 11. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. We read in verse 24, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. They said in verse 25, Have you seen this man? Even Saul? What's the king doing in all this? What's his part? Well, if we read on, we see that he's offering a reward to go fight the giants. Verse 25, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That's astounding. It's astounding because if anyone was the logical choice to to fight Goliath, it was Saul. Remember, he was a whole head taller than anyone in Israel. He's the closest thing the Israelites have to a giant. Israel wanted a king like the nations who will fight our battles for us and go out before us. Kings in these days were not like the the generals in um, the American Revolution where they draw up battle plans and then stay at the back of, of the army and watch it happen. Kings in Saul's day were warriors. At least they were supposed to be. And so Saul was supposed to be chief among them. God said, he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Do you remember in chapter 11, when Saul defeats the Ammonites because the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power? Do you remember how he rallied the troops in that chapter? He cut up a bunch of cows and put pieces on everyone's front lawn and said, if you don't join me in this battle, you're going to be like these dead cows. He was courageous and bold and strong. He was victorious. And now in chapter 17, a challenge is thrown down. Saul is whistling Dixie and bribing anyone else to go fight Goliath. Don't forget, off to the side in this story is David. Notice those pregnant words in verse 23. It's an obvious foreshadow. And David heard him. Goliath throws down the gauntlet, and David heard him. If David were this large and fearsome character, those would be ominous words. And David heard him. But there's irony there, right? It sounds like David's a bad dude, but we already know. No, no, no. He's, he's the shepherd boy. He's got ten cheeses, right? That's not, no one with ten cheeses is scary or threatening. That's a good guy. 
invite him to the Super Bowl. But, but it's purposely ironic. And David heard him. In fact, he's outraged. In verse 26, he makes this public statement, no doubt loudly. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? All their gods are dead gods. They are no gods. We have the living God. He's defying the armies of the living God. Who is this? Who is this uncircumcised Gentile outside the covenant, not under God's blessing, but under his judgment? Who is he? It's as if David sees nothing about Goliath's size. He only hears that that Goliath defies the living God. How does this go over with the soldiers around David? Well, it would seem like he's basically ignored by the soldiers, except for David's older brother, Eliab. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Eliab talks a lot like Goliath, actually, even though he's on the other army. There's similar language between what Goliath says to the Israelite armor in verse, army in verse 8. He says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? And what Eliab says to David in verse 28, why have you come down? It's too similar to think that the author doesn't want us to connect those dots. Just like Goliath mocked Israel, so Eliab mocks David. He, he mocks God's anointed. He knows better than this, right? He should know better than this. He was there in the last chapter in the same room when David was anointed, the future king. But he still sees David as a kid brother to pick on, views David just as a snooping meddler and no more. You can just tell that there's history between these two, the oldest and the youngest. How does David respond? Verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, can't I even say a word? Can I ever speak? And if it sounds kind of whiny, what have I done now? Know that in verse 30, David is undetoured. He turned away from him, the older brother. He turned toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. He won't shut up. Thirdly, the third scene, we see a weak king and a confident servant. A weak king and a confident servant. We've already read that Saul was afraid, that Saul did nothing, that he bribed others to go fight Goliath. And now the lens zooms in on Saul and his interaction with David. Look at verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of the mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Imagine that scene 
giant Saul and little David. Saul afraid of the much larger giant Goliath and little David approaches him and says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, let no man's heart fear him. Why? Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. I'll, I'll get him. I'll do it. David explains that he's not quite as green as he might look. Keeping sheep for the father. He's come across lion and bear. And he's had to fight them off and kill them. Sometimes up close. He makes clear here it's not his own skill. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The Lord is the difference. The Lord is the one who protects and the one who guards and the one who gives life and takes it. David's concern is not for his own safety. It's for God's honor. You see in verse 36, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of those bears or lions, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Six times in this chapter, we're told that Goliath defied or mocked or derided. It's the same Hebrew word over and over. He's taunting, and he's not just taunting an army. It's not just... Uh, it's not just talk. He's deriding their God. He's defied the armies of the living God. So David's concern is not about his safety, but about God's honor. And David's confidence is not in self, but in God's strength, in God orchestrating the victory. David's little speech to Saul Really, it's a sermon. We should call it that, a sermon. Really, David preaches to Saul, but Saul is unmoved. We should be aghast at the reality that the king so quickly let a child go fight a nine-and-a-half-foot Philistine. We should just be amazed at that. I mean, Saul gives one sentence saying, no, 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 you're not going to fight him. You're little. He's big. And then David gives a few more sentences, and, David, and then Saul says, okay, you can go. That's it. He's going to let a child go and fight a giant. Again, Saul should be the one, and instead he's handing this task over to David some have said that David actually fought three Goliaths in this chapter. His brother, then Saul, and then the actual Goliath, who just happens to be the actual El Guapo. <laughs> I promise to not do that again. When Saul says to David at the end of this exchange, the Lord be with you, verse 37, that sounds noble, but it's probably more like, well, good luck. He offers his armor to David in the next section. And that might seem noble and caring, but it's not. He's missed what David has preached to him, and he's thinking just like a Philistine. His armor is very similar to Goliath's armor. He operates just like the kings, like the nations have. That's what he's thinking when he offers this armor to David. See in verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The passage doesn't say that Saul's armor was too big for David. No doubt it was. Saul was the tallest in the land, and David was a, a youth, or a ute, as they say in New York. But what David says here is, I've not tested them. I, I'm not used to these. 
I don't use this. This isn't me. This isn't what I should do. Instead, he took his staff, a shepherd's staff, and five smooth stones for his slingshot, and a shepherd's pouch. These are all shepherd's tools. He's going into battle against the greatest soldier we could ever imagine, probably. The champion. A guy who's just known as the champion. He's going in with a slingshot, a shepherd's staff, and a pouch. He walked down the hill toward the giant Philistine. Now we see a fourth scene. A big man and a bigger God. A big man and a bigger God. This fourth contrast could be from one angle about the giant and the boy, or the warrior and the shepherd. And that's true, that's there. But more profoundly, it's a contrast between Goliath and the living God. That's clear from the exchange that takes place between David and Goliath before their actual battle. Look at verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks, with a shepherd's stick? You're going to shoo me away with that? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly behind me may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give me into your hand." Goliath cursed David by his gods, it says. We were introduced to one of those gods back in 1 Samuel 5. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple of Dagon, one of their idols. And Dagon kept tumbling over each night. Eventually, his head broken off, his arms broken off. They had to prop him up each time, glue his arms back on, put his head back on like Humpty Dumpty, and close the door to the temple because it was so embarrassing. The God of Israel made Dagon fall down before him. He cursed David by his pathetic gods. He also compared his size and his strength with David's. And we could say rightly so, he laughed. He compared his armor and his weaponry to David's, his little stick. He doesn't maybe even see the sling. He scoffs. Goliath is absolutely sure of his victory. And why wouldn't he be? If you were there watching, you'd think exactly the same thing. Uh-oh, this is going to get ugly. But David compared Goliath's sword and his spear, not with David's staff or his sling. He compared Goliath's sword and spear to the Lord. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, and the God of the armies of Israel, verse 45. It's, it's funny to compare David to Goliath. Oh, it's, it's downright comical to compare Goliath to God. And God is the one who will fight. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He will do it. And why will he do it? We get a two-pronged reason in verse 46 and then verse 47. David says, 
He'll do this that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That you Philistines would know there is a God in Israel, the true and living God. And the second prong in verse 47, and that all this assembly, this army, this king, my brother, that they would know the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. That you may know. There's a key in this chapter, that you may know. That's the problem that's getting addressed. That's the reason God is doing all this. That's the reason for the story, that you may know. Israel's biggest problem was not Goliath, nor the Philistines. Their biggest problem was their own heart and their forgetfulness. They had forgotten that there's a God in Israel. They had forgotten that the Lord saves not with sword or spear or Saul's armor. The battle is the Lord's. And now we finally come to that battle. And notice how quick it is. Notice how little space it actually receives in the passage. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. The actual battle scene of running toward each other and David slinging his sling and and killing Goliath, it's two verses out of 58 in the chapter. That's what we think of when we think of the story of David and Goliath, the moment where David ran and he slung the stone and it killed Goliath. But it's just a verse or two in this chapter. What's my point? My point is, this chapter is mostly about speeches. David preaches. Three times, once to the soldiers, even more to Saul, A third time with more length and more passion to Goliath. He preaches. We want to know what the story of David and Goliath is all about? Listen to David. He'll tell us. He'll tell us. It's a story about God's honor. About God's power. The goal is that all the earth may know that God is God. And that this assembly would know the Lord saves not with sword or spear. A big man, but a much bigger God. Lastly, we see in the remaining verses an emerging leader and a greater hope. An emerging leader and a greater hope. At the end of verse 51, we start with the aftermath after David has slain the giant. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose the shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaurim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistines in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Who is this one? Who is this one who changed everything? 
Who is this one who freed his own army from fear and bondage and set them free in victory? Well, he's God's man. That's apparent. The writing is on the wall. In fact, it's almost literally on the wall. You might not have noticed in verse 53 the mention of Jerusalem. You might not have noticed that that's unusual or odd. You see, Jerusalem isn't gained by the Israelites and established as a capital until 2 Samuel 5. But in breaking the chronology here once again, the writer puts it in. David took this stuff and put it in Jerusalem. It's a fast-forward moment. It's fast. This is an arrow pointing us in the direction of where this thing's going. David's going to be king. He's going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to have his son build a temple for the Lord. God's blessings are upon him. This thing is moving. The writing is on the wall. The writing has been on the wall for quite some time. Listen to what Hannah foretold at the beginning of this book for Samuel. Remember Hannah's prayer? She said in 1 Samuel 2, to the ungodly, to the wicked, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, Goliath. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones like David. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what we're seeing in 1 Samuel 17. David will later write a psalm. Psalm 2. And surely the events of 1 Samuel 17 and other places are in his mind as he pens these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth and their giants set themselves. They take their stand, just like it said of Goliath. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But... He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He will say to his anointed, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 17. It's beginning to happen anyway. Something cosmic. God is breaking in. It's not a story of a simple shepherd boy who had good self-esteem. Or even a good shot. The Lord is doing this. The Lord is bringing judgment and salvation. The Lord is doing it. The message of 1 Samuel 17 is not that we can conquer any hurdle, no matter how tall. It's not that we need more courage. It's that we need a rescuer. We need a rescuer. We need someone who will fight for us. We always read a story or watch a movie 
identifying ourselves with one of the characters more than the others. You watch usually a movie or read a book through one of the characters' glasses. You're probably tempted to read this story standing in David's shoes. You probably think, I'm not a very good David. Sometimes I look a little bit like David. I know I should be more like David. But you you tend to view this, as I do, at least at first, through the eyes of David. Do you know who I am in the story? Do you know who you are in the story? Not David. The fearful and frozen army. We're the soldiers. We're those who are gripped with, with doubt and fear, full of unbelief. We're a fearful people. It consumes us. We know it, right? Oftentimes, we're not even fearful of the right thing. We're afraid about the job. We're afraid about the future. We're afraid about retirement. We're afraid about the government. We're afraid of traffic. We should fear the Lord, and we should recognize our sin. You see, just like the Israelites, our greatest threat is not Goliath or the Philistines. Our greatest threat is our own heart. Again, full of doubt, full of fear, full of unbelief, looking at things only as man sees them. We need a rescuer. And we need a rescuer who's actually better than David. We need a better hope than how this chapter ends. If the real problem is in our own hearts and not the Goliaths of the world, then we need more than a slingshot. We need a hero who can conquer our sin, who can conquer our stubborn wills. We need David's greater son, Jesus. He was like David. And so we can't help but think of Jesus when we read 1 Samuel 17. And yet, he's so much more than David. So we can't help but think past 1 Samuel 17 when we read it. There's more to the story. They're similar, though. Jesus, too, like David, was overlooked, rejected by his own. He didn't look like a savior, a rescuer, neither did Jesus. But like David, Jesus was zealous for God's name and honor. That's what drove him. Like David, he went into battle willingly and boldly. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem at some point, knowing he was going to the cross. Like David, he faced blasphemous and bloodthirsty opposition. Like David, he conquered the enemy, not in human strength, but in apparent weakness. And just as David's victory over Goliath set the people free and shouting in joy, so too Jesus has won the victory and set his people free Not free from the fear of Philistines, not free from low self-esteem so much, but free from nothing less than death and the devil and the curse and our sin and God's holy judgment. He has set us free. And so we don't need to fear. He came and he conquered the one who has the power over death so that we can be free from the fear of death. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Because we don't have to fear him, we don't have to fear anything. Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So who will separate us? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or famine or hardship or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who died for us. And because we are free and loved, because we're victorious in his victory, then we can risk for him we can go courageously into the battle that's still left we can fight valiantly in his strength we can serve vigorously we can give sacrificially we can go to the uttermost parts of the earth and we can speak boldly the battle is the lord's it's his he doesn't save with sword or spear The battle is the Lord's, and he saves in this way that you would know there is a God in Israel and in all the earth, and that we would know he saves, not with sword or spear. The battle is his. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his victory. We thank you for his glory. We thank you for your power in your work in history and in today. In our lives, we thank you for conquering stubborn hearts, defeating unbelief, giving us your grace. We pray that grace would spread here this morning. We pray that people here would not die like Saul under your just judgment, not die like Goliath, under your holiness but would rejoice celebrating in the victory that is theirs in Christ in his work upon the cross and in his glorious resurrection help us Lord to see our need for a savior and help us to rejoice even now as we sing in your greatness we pray in Jesus name amen